Welcome to the August 20th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study exploring recurrent somatic deletions at chromosome 13q12.2 in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, leading to upregulation of FLT3. Examine how matriptase 2 plays a key role in suppressing hepatic hepcidin expression and learn about the addition of daratumumab to lenalidomide, ortezomib, and dexamethasone as a quadruple therapy for transplant-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Our first topic is a study entitled 13Q12.2 deletions in acute lymphoblastic leukemia lead to upregulation of FLT3 through enhancer hijacking by Minyun Yang at Lund University in Sweden and other international colleagues. The FIMS-like tyrosine kinase 3, or FLT3 gene, is one of the most commonly mutated genes in acute leukemia, with approximately 30% of acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, and approximately 5% of pediatric B-cell precursor lymphoblastic leukemia, or BCP-ALL displaying mutations. FLT3 is a class 3 receptor tyrosine kinase that is primarily expressed in the bone marrow, in particular on CD34 plus hematopoietic stem and early progenitor cells. Upon binding of the FLT3 ligand, FLT3 dimerizes and tyrosine residues in the tyrosine kinase domains become autophosphorylated. This leads to increased cell proliferation and reduced apoptosis through activation of the P13K, AKT, RASMAP kinase, and STAT5 signaling pathways. The majority of mutations in FLT3 are either internal tandem duplications of the juxtamembrane domain, most common in AML, or point mutations in the kinase domain, both of which lead to constitutive activation of the FLT3 receptor. Interestingly, high FLT3 expression is seen in some leukemic subtypes regardless of mutation status, for example in ALL with high hyperdiploidy, defined by the presence of 51 to 67 chromosomes. In their study, Yang and colleagues examined the pathogenic impact of somatic hemizygous 13q12.2 microdeletions in B-cell precursor acute lymphoblastic leukemia. They investigated a total of 1,418 BCP-ALL cases from five different patient cohorts. The authors conducted detailed analysis of the 13q12.2 deletions and found that they occurred immediately 5' prime of the FLT3 gene promoter. Further, the deletions caused the loss of a topologically associating domain border and an enhancer of the FLT3 gene. This then resulted in increased cis interactions between the FLT3 promoter and another enhancer located distally to the deletion breakpoints, with subsequent allele-specific upregulation of FLT3 expression. This increase in FLT3 expression would be expected to lead to ligand-independent activation of the receptor and downstream signaling much as would be seen if there was a FLT3 ITD mutation. The 13q12.2 deletions were found to be particularly highly enriched in the hyperdiploid BCP-ALL subtype and in cases that subsequently relapsed. As a result, 
Yang asserts their study describes a novel mechanism of FLT3 involvement in leukemogenesis by upregulation via chromatin remodeling and enhancer hijacking in cases which lack any FLT3 mutations, and raised the question of whether FLT3 inhibitors might have value in cases of BCP-ALL with these deletions. As David Spencer of Washington University School of Medicine notes in his commentary of the study, altered gene expression is a hallmark of cancer, but reasons for these changes are often poorly understood. Somatic mutations directly alter gene expression in some cases. While molecular consequences of coding mutations can often be predicted simply from their effect on a gene sequence, non-coding mutations require more work. Spencer goes on to state that the data collected and analyzed by Yang are important for three reasons. First, the results contribute valuable functional annotation to the 13Q12.2 region in regard to the role of the TAD boundary affected by the deletion and the functional properties of the distal enhancer that hijack FLT3 in deleted cells. He says this advances our understanding of the human genome and how this specific locus is regulated in hematopoietic cells. Second, the availability of therapeutic FLT3 inhibitors means that the 13Q12.2 deletions could have clinical implications both for BCP-ALL and perhaps other patients with acute leukemia. Lastly, Spencer states, the study adds to the list of recurrent mutations in cancer that act by disrupting normal gene regulation. He says that compared to coding mutations, clear examples of typical genomic features, functional consequences, and approaches required to characterize these mutations are needed. Our next topic is a study entitled, The Ectodomain of Matriptase II plays an important non-proteolytic role in suppressing hepcidin expression in mice, conducted by Caroline Enns and Sheng Zhang at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. In this study, they demonstrate that the mechanism of action of TMPRSS6 may differ from earlier predictions and assumptions. As explained by Thomas Benedict Bartnikus of Brown University, in his accompanying commentary, TMPRSS6 also known as matriptase 2, is a membrane protein abundantly expressed in the liver that inhibits expression of hepcidin, a hormone made largely by the liver. Hepcidin inhibits dietary absorption and release of iron from cellular sites of iron storage. It is abundantly expressed in conditions of iron excess and inflammation, and minimally expressed in conditions of iron deficiency. By inhibiting hepcidin, TMPRSS6 stimulates iron absorption and iron release from stores, thereby increasing the availability of iron throughout the body. This potent effect of TMPRSS6 on iron availability underscores the pivotal role of this protein in iron biology. Mutations in TMPRSS6 cause a disease known as iron refractory iron deficiency anemia. The TMPRSS6 deficiency in this disease leads to excessive hepcidin expression and suppression of dietary iron absorption. The anemia observed in these patients is refractory to admission of oral iron because of limited dietary iron absorption. It was originally thought that at the molecular level, TMPRSS6 impacted hepcidin expression by binding to and cleaving key factors essential for hepcidin expression by the liver. These factors, including hemojuvalin, 
A bone morphogenetic protein co-receptor are essential for expression of hepcidin in the liver. Mutations in hemojuvalin cause a juvenile form of hereditary hemochromatosis, a common disease of iron excess. With this deficiency, the liver is unable to express sufficient amounts of hepcidin, and dietary absorption of iron continues unabated, even at high iron levels. By cleaving and inactivating hemojuvalin, TMPR-SS6 downregulates hepcidin expression by the liver, increasing iron absorption. Enns and Zhang demonstrate that by using cell culture and mouse-based studies, mutant forms of TMPR-SS6 lacking proteolytic activity can still suppress hepcidin expression, provided that extracellular domain of the protein is otherwise still intact. The key findings of this research are that metriptase II is able to function independently of its proteolytic activity, likely by binding to hemojuvalin and HFE, and additionally, that this interaction with substrates is sufficient for metriptase II suppression of hepcidin expression. Enns and colleagues conclude that the study findings have clinical implications for treatment of iron overload diseases. The proteolytic activity of metriptase II has been previously identified as a target for the treatment of these disorders by using specific inhibitors of the protease activity, and thereby elevating hepcidin expression to reduced iron absorption. The authors state that drugs that inhibit TMPR-SS6's proteolytic activity may be ineffective compared to drugs that limit its ability to bind to proteins, such as hemojuvalin. This could then lead to the generation of a new type of pharmacologic agent that scientists could employ to better understand the mechanistic underpinnings of iron biology, and physicians could employ to treat patients with iron-loading anemias, hereditary hemochromatosis, and other iron-related diseases. Our final topic today will be a study entitled Daratumumab, Lenalidomide, Bortezomib, and Dexamethasone for Transplant-Eligible Newly Diagnosed Multiple Myeloma, or Griffin Study, conducted by Peter M. Voorhees at Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, and collaborating Griffin trial investigators. Recommended frontline treatment for transplant-eligible newly diagnosed multiple myeloma includes induction therapy, high-dose melphalan and autologous stem cell transplantation, and maintenance therapy. However, this treatment is non-curative in the vast majority of patients. Therefore, novel strategies with manageable toxicity are needed to improve depth of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival. The combination of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, or RVD therapy, has been the standard induction treatment for patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, who are transplant eligible, and demonstrates a median progression-free survival of 50 months and a four-year overall survival of 81%. While this represents a significant advance over previous induction therapies, there remains much room for improvement. Daratumumab is a human IgG-kappa monoclonal antibody targeting the CD38 antigen expressed by myeloma cells. Previous studies have shown that the addition of daratumumab to induction regimens in both newly diagnosed and relapsed myeloma patients improved depth of response, including minimal residual disease negativity. The Griffin study was designed to examine whether the addition of daratumumab to standard RVD induction therapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplant, would improve depth of response 
including rates of stringent complete response and minimum residual disease negativity in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. Here, Voorhees and colleagues report on the primary efficacy and updated secondary efficacy and safety results of the randomized phase of the Griffin trial. In this study, 207 patients were randomized at a ratio of 1 to 1 to receive either standard RVD or RVD with the addition of daratumumab for four cycles of induction followed by autologous stem cell transplantation. 60 to 100 days after transplant, the patients received intensive consolidation therapy and then maintenance therapy, again with or without daratumumab, until disease progression or two years of therapy. The primary endpoint was the rate of stringent CR after autologous stem cell transplantation, or ASCT, and consolidation therapy, and the secondary endpoint was the proportion of patients who received MRD negativity. 42% of patients achieved stringent CR by the end of post-ASCT consolidation in the DRVD group versus 32% of patients in the RVD group, a difference that was statistically significant. Interestingly, responses continued to deepen over time, and at the last follow-up, at a median follow-up time at 22 months, the percentage of patients with stringent CR was 62.6% in the DRVD group versus 45.4% in the RVD group. Similarly, the MRD negativity rate was 51% in the DRVD group and 20% in the RVD group in the intent-to-treat population. Serious adverse events were common in both groups. There was a slight increase in hematologic adverse events, such as neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, in the daratumumab arm, and also an increase in the rate of infections. Overall, however, the daratumumab combination was viewed as being well-tolerated. In the accompanying commentary on the study, Jean-Luc Arousseau at the Sorbonne University in Paris points out that it will be important to also prove that daratumumab improves progression-free survival in this patient population, and that a larger international phase 3 study has been set up for that purpose, called the Perseus trial. If the Perseus trial confirms these data, and in addition, shows a progression-free survival advantage due to the addition of daratumumab, the quadruplet therapy, DRVD, will become the new standard in transplantation programs for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Arousseau concludes by listing multiple questions that need to be addressed, including the number of induction courses that are necessary for benefit, as well as the total number of cycles. He says it also remains to be determined if the quadruplet therapy could be further improved. In conclusion, Dr. Paul Richardson, the senior author of the Griffin study, summarizes the study as follows. Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Richardson and I'm the Director of Clinical Research and Clinical Program Leader here at the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and I also serve as the R.J. Coleman Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. It was my privilege to be the Senior Author and Senior Investigator of the Griffin Study, working in partnership with my outstanding colleagues led by the Principal Investigator Dr. Peter Voorhees and colleagues all of whom were part of a study group, including the Alliance, in which we evaluated the role of bortezomib combined with lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and daratumumab, so-called RVD-DARA, combined with transplant, and compared this to RVD and transplant alone.
Now, what was very important was that the main conclusions of our study were that daratumumab added significantly to the clinical benefit of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, such that DARA-RVD improved stringent complete remission rates and also substantially improved minimal residual disease negativity versus RVD and transplant alone. Importantly, all of these parameters improved over time, and encouragingly, there were no new safety concerns observed with DARA-RVD, and in fact, no clinically significant impact on stem cell mobilization or engraftment was seen. Going forward, as we continue to think about the evolving role of transplant in the management of multiple myeloma, the combination of daratumumab and RVD provides, in our view, very important new addition uh, to the therapeutic armamentarium. Thank you for your kind attention and time. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.